When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 90th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is how to be a perennial. I'm joined by Lindsay Pollock. She is the author of Recalculating, Navigating Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. The publisher is HarperCollins. Lindsay is a New York Times bestselling author of three previous books, including The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace. She was named to the 2020 Thinkers 50 Radar List of Global Management Thinkers, and her consulting and keynote speaking clients have included over 250 various corporations, law firms, and universities. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. Oh, it'll be a delight. So the the honor's all mine. Uh, why don't you give us a quick overview, if you don't mind, of your latest book, Recalculating? Absolutely. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so as you mentioned, I've written three previous books, and the remix came out in 2019. And I was out promoting that book uh, at the beginning of 2020. And we all know where this story is going when anyone mentions 2020. (laughs) Um, I had a fully booked calendar of speaking events for the remix about generational diversity. Really looking forward to a good year. And every single one of my events canceled. And I went from a fully booked calendar to completely empty. And speaking and writing are my business. So it was obviously a very upsetting, daunting feeling. And before we all sort of figured out that we could present and attend events on Zoom and so forth, I was really struggling to figure out how to keep my business going. And I was sitting in my apartment in New York City, kind of staring out the window. And I just looked at the cars on the street and had this feeling like... We were all in our cars driving with the GPS telling us what to do and kind of knowing our destination. And it was like the whole world had a GPS sort of flail and say recalculating at the same moment. And I just kept thinking about that feeling that you have when you're driving. 
And my instinct uh, when I'm struggling is to write and talk to people and kind of see what other people are doing. That's always guided my writing and my work. And I started calling people and texting people and saying, you know, what are you doing? Do you have the same feeling? You know, how are you getting to your destination? What are you changing? How are you recalculating? And that became this book. And what's really different about recalculating as opposed to my my previous books is I've always been a very tactical writer, you know, put this on your resume, say this on a job interview, do this at a networking event. And recalculating was much more about mindset and controlling what we can and knowing your values and, you know, figuring out how to move forward when you're experiencing burnout. And ironically, I kept writing the book as if the pandemic would be over by the time it came out. And as we all know, (laughs) the book came out in March 2021. (laughs) And here we are in March 2022. um, And it's still not over. So I've really um, gotten very interested in talking to people um, really around the world about kind of how we've gotten through this and what are the lessons that we can take beyond this pandemic. Um, And I love your topic on emotions and EQ to help us move forward, even in very, very hard times. Yeah, no, I just thought this was a, a perfect fit because the great resignation and the great reshuffling and the great recalculation uh, does involve our value system and what we want from our careers and who we want to become. And it just seemed like a perfect fit. And I, I love the title and it lends itself to a really nice book image because um, not all book covers have great you know, imagery, but uh, this one has a really nice adroit uh, choice. Uh, dictated by the whole notion of recalculating. So uh, I think that's great. And yes, by the way, COVID-19 is a really outdated term, as we said here in 2022. (laughs) So um, speaking of emotions, so at one point uh, in the book fairly early on, you mentioned that envy doesn't have to be a negative emotion. Um, I'm wondering if you can give an example from your own life about how envy has actually been a nice catalyst. Yeah, that's what I've always struggled with, um, which is everybody else is doing better than I am, right? Everybody else is more successful. Everybody else is, uh, you know, happier, et cetera. And I really found that social media was feeding that comparison and that sense of envy. Um, And I actually gave up using Instagram and Facebook. I'm still very active on LinkedIn. I find it a little bit different in the tone. Um, But what I found was I was looking and sort of comparing myself to everybody else. And I wanted to write about that in recalculating. And so I was looking at academic studies on social media and mental health. And one of the ones I came across really compared active social media scrolling with passive. And passive is just obviously randomly scrolling through. But active social media scrolling was looking for something. Like, I'm trying to think of a new career. I'm going to go and look at other people who seem to be happy in their careers and see what they do. Or I'm redecorating my home and I want this kind of feeling. I'm going to go seek out images that make me feel good. And that you know, sort of envy or finding things you admire, maybe is a better word, is actually something that you can use to fuel you. So if I look and say, oh, Dan's podcast is so good. His books are so good. I'm so jealous. I could say, hmm, actually, maybe there's something I can learn from what Dan is doing that I can apply to my life and turn that envy into action that I can take it. And for people who say, I don't know what I want. I'm undecided. I'm flailing. One of my pieces of advice is go seek out images or people that maybe it feels like envy, but you can use that as a catalyst to tell you what it is you really want and hopefully point you in a direction that will be positive. 
No, I, I think that's great. Um, you know, you can use social media for benchmarking, for ideation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's very, where you want to go eventually, but, uh, you know, don't just have a blank canvas you're looking at. Uh, you can use social media as that canvas. And, uh, yeah, recasting it as admiration uh, makes sense to me. Uh, there's another thing you brought up in the book. It was a wonderful quote from Heather McGowan who said, learning is the new pension. Can you unpack that for us? Because I think it has a lot of implications. Yes. So uh, my friend, Lori Rudiman, who wrote a book called Betting on You, says the same thing. Uh, when in doubt, learn something, right? Nobody's ever said, boy, I really regret learning. You know, <laughs> it's sort of always often seen as, um, <laughs> as a positive. And so the message is, while money is important, titles and status are important, you know, they're very helpful on your resume. I think as people are living longer and working longer, technology and the world are changing so fast, learning, education, training, skills, that has currency that is incredibly valuable. So I've heard particularly of the younger generation saying, look, early in my career, everybody wants enough money, you know, to pay for, for their needs and to feel fairly compensated. But beyond and, and that- And to pay off their college debts. Yes, yes. and to pay off <laughs> tremendous college debt. But beyond that, would I rather have an extra $5,000 or would I rather have a skill that I can now put on my resume and LinkedIn profile that will help me get the next job or help me advance in my career? And for those you know, who are more in middle age or mid-career, learning keeps you relevant and keeps you moving forward if you want to work another 10, 20, 30 years. So at every stage of the career path, learning, development, uh, skill building, reskilling, upskilling, all of those buzzwords have real value. And I would rather know that my skills are staying sharp than that I have a little bit more money in the bank. Because I think ultimately, if you take the long term approach, that's going to be more valuable to you staying relevant and employed or having a business longer. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Because to me, underlying that comment is really the importance of having curiosity. Mm. Uh, I happen to be a, a facial coder, which means I read emotions from people's facial muscle activity. And when you're curious, your eyes are wide, mm. your eyebrows lift, you're literally expanding your field of vision and taking in new things. And in a world where so much is changing... And so quickly, um, you know, having your eyes closed, on the other hand, is not a recipe for success. So I like that a lot. So I want to bring in now a little bit by degrees, uh, both this book and your book on the multi-generational workplace. And I did something a little bit different for this podcast. I actually sent over to Lindsay in advance uh, an emotions table that I used in my book, Emotionomics. And I'm hoping we're going to kind of move through some of the stages in uh, Lindsay's book and talk about the emotions that maybe pertain even potentially by generation if they're different and and move them through. But let's start with the kind of the front of the stream. That's the job search itself, which takes up a good part of this book. Uh, before we get to the, the table and the possibility, I wanted one question here. You had some really great questions you at, you suggested people might ask back to the interviewer, because I think that is really important. I've run a company, and I love and hired, and usually had the most successful hires with the people who had good questions to ask me back. But you had a few examples in this book. Um, do you want to maybe mention them to us? Yeah, and I think this is true for a job seeker of any generation, any level, any industry. Number one is, you know, the interview is not just a chance to talk about yourself and why you might be a good fit for the particular job, 
But I think you really now more than ever have to make a case that you're a good fit for the organization. And so one of the things that you can do to, you know, it's not I'm so great and you're so great. It's that we're the right fit for each other. And so I think that the research component that a job candidate does is so, so critical. You know, you have the internet, you can follow companies or employers on social media, you can obviously read through their websites, you can, you know, follow information about them in all these different forums, maybe they have a podcast, maybe the CEO writes a blog, etc, etc, that coming into the job interview I really discourage people from saying generic things like what's a typical day like or, you know, how would you describe the culture and instead say, um, you know, Dan, I was reading on your website about your organization that you are very supportive of, um, you know, sustainability initiatives in our community. I'd love to hear more about this role, how this role plays into that. So you're demonstrating a real curiosity, to use your word, which I love, not just about like, what is this employer, but I've read this about you. It got me excited. How could I fit into that? So you're really building that rapport, um, which I think is so important. And I think particularly younger job seekers have much more confidence to feel like they're interviewing the company as well. And I think the way an employer or an interviewer or recruiter answers some of your questions starts to give you insight into what it would actually be like to work at that company. And there was just a study from a company I work with called Capfinity, an organization called YouGov. And they said that 70% of job seekers say that they want experiential recruiting, which means they want to feel what it's like to work at the company during the recruiting Uh, process. And I think that is so powerful, really hard to do virtually, but very, very important to job seekers to actually know what they're they're getting into. Oh, I I love that. I mean, experiences tell you a lot more than just uh, the common patter and the usual, you know, canned questions and answers and so forth. And yeah, rapport, and that gives you a chance to move toward what are the values, what's the sensibility of the organization, uh, even its kind of projected brand personality. So let's taking let's take the, the head of the stream, as I suggested, the job search and the interviewing. Is it possible that there are different emotions or a key emotion may be felt differently by each of these generations? Or if not, what kind of emotions might you assign to this stage? So it's so interesting. I was looking at your chart thinking, of course, everyone of every age feels every emotion, you know, in some way. But I think that the trigger or what's behind the emotion is kind of where my brain went. And I thought in job search, it's very, very common that, that a dominant emotion would be fear, right? <laughs> Which is, <Yes. laughs> I'm afraid of this situation, you know, but I think there are different reasons. So, you know, perhaps, and again, I never, ever want to say that everybody feels the same way because you're a certain age. But in my experience, a lot of younger, you know, millennial or Gen Z job seekers might have fear of the process that they haven't been through job interviews very many times. They're worried they're going to say the wrong thing. They don't really know what's going to happen. There's sort of a trepidation, maybe, kind of fear. And I think that for Gen X and boomer job seekers, sometimes the fear is of age discrimination or that they will be considered overqualified or that they won't connect with perhaps a younger interviewer. So I think sometimes the emotion is the same, but the reasons for that emotion might be different. 
Oh, no, I think that's a completely valid and, and insightful way to take it. Uh, that, that's excellent. So let's, let's imagine you actually uh, get the job and now you're on the job and you're kind of going through orientation, which in my experience led for anything from just a, a tad bit of orientation to frankly, basically nothing mm. other than here are your first three assignments and they were due last week. Um, but you mentioned when you get on the job, you're seeking new skills, you're meeting people, self-knowledge and opportunities for mobility. So I think those are all very valid, uh, particularly the, the people part, because you're still trying to figure out what, you know, what community you just join. In the onboarding and orientation, what kind of emotion or emotions do you think are, are pertinent there? And again, is there any uh, kind of shift by generation? Looking at this chart, I thought all of the, the positive, happiness, surprise, delight, and relief are probably all mixed in when you, when you actually get a job <laughs> and, and get started. But what, what strikes me on onboarding, I think you, you made such a good point, is it is such a missed opportunity for employers. I mean, you have a moment where everybody's feeling great. You know, we've just hired you. We've brought you on. You know, you won and you're here and we want you. But, you know, here's your email address and sit at this desk and nobody's going to welcome you. You know, it's such a missed yes. opportunity <laughs> to tap into that positivity. You know, whereas some companies, you know, I, there was a, a insurance company that I worked with in Dayton, Ohio, and the CEO greets every new employee at the door on their first day. Like, oh, that's wonderful. What a small yeah. gesture that means the world to somebody. What a what a surprise and delight moment, a random act of kindness, right? To do that, to make sure that your email is ready to go so you don't have that awkward, awful feeling when, you know, sorry, my email isn't set up today. You know, um, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have you shadow somebody else so that you get to know where everything is. I'm going to walk you through the, the coffee machine. You know, virtually, I think it's even harder. One thing that um, a law firm I worked with did was they gave every new employee a particular virtual background so that anyone on a Zoom call with them would immediately identify them as new and introduce themselves. So these little gestures are so critical to make someone feel important. And, and one of the things I'll bring in is, um, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion has become so critical to so many companies' goals this year, and rightly so, and, and often too late. But a, another word that's been added to that conversation recently is the word belonging. It's not just about diversity, yes. inclusion, but actually a sense of belonging. And I think what better opportunity than the onboarding orientation beginner moment to really feel that sense of belonging. And I think it's just so, so important. And those little tiny things can make a huge difference in people's happiness and comfort. Sure. Well, after all, in the Inferno, Dante has a guide, Virgil, as he's taken through the various rings. I mean, everyone, you know, it just seems to me that too often, I mean, and I love the idea of the CEO being the, the guide initially, but it would be great to have anybody. some small community. <laughs> yeah, just somebody, anybody. You can get uh, an orientation who, guide to hell, as you're saying. So, gosh, you could do it at a company. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, obviously you're hoping you get to, you know, paradise instead eventually. But, um, you know, it all, all depends on how you get treated, I suppose. Um you know, the, the boss interaction, I mean, the, the famous line, of course, you know, the people don't leave companies, they leave bosses behind because it becomes intolerable. Uh, let's take it on a more positive note. You mentioned that uh, it's it's wise to figure out how a boss likes to receive information. Do you have a couple other pieces of good advice in terms of managing the managers that sometimes said? Yeah, we call that managing up, which is, I think there's a myth that, well, your title is manager, your job is to manage me. I don't have to do anything, right? And if anything goes wrong, it's 
always your fault. And I think that employees can take more responsibility for that relationship. And look, there are toxic bosses out there. And if there is discrimination or, you know, abuse, get out of there. But for the typical sort of disappointments and, you know, kind of personality clashes, there's a lot that an employee can do to really understand their boss. And so I always recommend that you become like the world's leading expert on your boss, right? And how that person communicates, <laughs> how that person works as if they're a client, right? So if you consider your boss to yeah. be your number one client, it sort of takes away that feeling that he or she mistreats me or they're a micromanager and says, okay, this person prefers that I CC her on a lot of emails. Okay. Like that's what my client wants. That's what I'm going to do. Or this person doesn't give a lot of feedback. I'm going to go seek feedback elsewhere because that's not really going to happen from this person. So I think really studying again, to use your word that I love with curiosity, what makes this person tick? What do they do? And to be honest, I do a lot of training for early career professionals and, you know, I'll do this whole session and talk about these kinds of things. And someone will come up at the end and say, you know, Lindsay, I get it. It's good advice, but I can't do any of this because I have the bad boss. You know, I have the boss that nobody wants. And my response to early career professionals is always congratulations Because if you can get good at reporting to difficult people early in your career, that's a superpower. I mean, you're, you're, I've never met anyone. You tell me, I've never met anyone at the end of their career. It's like, gosh, you know, everyone was so delightful. You know, I never dealt with a difficult person in my whole career. If you can learn how to handle that and manage around it and thrive despite it, it just gives you a, a sort of sense of empowerment that it's a skill to build as opposed to this obstacle in your way. And that takes, you know, a lot of um, a lot of confidence and a lot of positivity. But I think that the emotions you have around your boss are a little more in our control than people tend to think. Okay. And, and what are those emotions, pray tell? I mean, and looking at your list, it could be anything, right? It could be vengeance. It could be <laughs> outrage. It could be contempt. It could be resentment. But I think we all know you can't change other people, but you can change how you react to it. And believe me, I've had enough therapy, you know, personally to, to sort of figure this out. But how do you, you know, kind of, I, I like the word relief on here. You can get relief from these situations by how you choose to react to them. Um, and I think that that's really the key is to know that you can't change that person, but you can change how you react to their behavior. Okay. No, I like that a lot because the, the opposite in that poll, unfortunately, would be probably contempt mm. and, you know, a lack of respect, a lack of trust that you feel like you've been backsided. The person's let you sound so many times because to me, although it's listed here as an emotion, contempt comes close to being an attitude mm. that uh, kind of forms over time. And it can be very hard to overturn. In fact, it's the most reliable indicator that a marriage will fail. Mm-hmm. I've so, read that. Uh, just yeah. as it's not good in a, you know, in a personal relationship, one can imagine that uh, in interacting with one's boss, um, it's not going to lead to good outcomes either. So all that makes a lot of sense. Um, moving on to colleagues, what kind of uh, emotions? I mean, again, it can be any place because any kind of a colleague, but do you see any emotions that particularly caught your eye from the chart regarding interacting with colleagues is, of course, now so much of our work is with in, in teams in collaboration as opposed to solo projects. So I'm just going to go with my gut here that I want to talk about nostalgia, which is the one on here that's sort of positioned as neutral. But I think in this particular kind of hybrid remote environment that we're in, I think there's a lot of yearning, another word you have on here, for the way things used to be. Right. And particularly people who liked being in an office might feel a sense of nostalgia for 
bumping into people or chit-chatting or walking to get a cup of coffee together. And I think when uh, when and if people go back into an office, there might be some yearning for having been home, right? And having been able to kind of be in your sweatpants. <laughs> yes. But we, we sort of, I think, you know, and, and even I see this a lot, you know, in the generational conversation. Um, and, and I want to bring the word perennial in here, which is a term coined by a technology entrepreneur and writer named Gina Pell. I don't want to take credit for her word. But a perennial is someone, she says, who's really kind of of all ages, right? They're, they're not stuck in one era. And so the definition of a perennial is somebody who knows their history, but also keeps up with the times. And I'm thinking an example of that related to colleagues is the office environment. And I'm thinking when I started out, it was a real mark of success to have an office, right? And particularly a corner yes. office. And then many, many companies changed their model and went to this open office environment. And some people said, cool, great, you know, no problem. I'll keep up with the times, no big deal. But certain people said, you know, I really, I worked really hard to get this office and I'm disappointed that I don't get to have an office anymore because times have changed. And so I think you can be a perennial and keep up with the times and acknowledge that things are different. But I think it's also okay to feel a sense of loss and say, huh, I really, really wanted that and it doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, I'm going to have some feelings about that. And I think sometimes we just try to move people forward and say, hey, times have changed, you know, deal with it. But I, I get that emotion. And I think um, those of us who maybe are in situations in a work environment with colleagues where they seem to be more comfortable with the change than we are, I just sort of want to acknowledge the people who are saying, whoa, 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 I, I kind of like the way things were. And, and one funny thing um, with the pandemic it sort of seems to be a lot of people um, who are in jobs in offices say, oh, my gosh, I love working from home. It's so great. I don't have to commute. But I've had people who are almost embarrassed to say, well, I kind of liked being in the office. You know, <laughs> I don't want to say it. And so I think it's just acknowledging that we all have really different emotions around that that space issue. And just to be mindful and, and maybe empathetic to the fact that how you feel about a situation may not be how your colleague feels. Uh, I, I love that answer. I had Daniel Pink on this mm. uh, show recently and, you know, his new books on regret. And the point was, you know, we think of regret as a negative emotion, but actually it means we're also pondering something. We're learning from our mistakes. It's a chance to go backward, to go forward, as he says in the book subtitle. I think the same thing's true of nostalgia. I mean, you can't uh, deny the fact, particularly if you look at some of the older generations here in my chart, you know, boomers, Gen X, even millennials, you know, for all of us who were in a different office situation before. Um, and, you know, you're going to remember some of those details and maybe some of it had positive aspects to it for you. And what were those? And, and that in the, identifies your sensibility, your value system. And maybe there's some ways to replicate those or bring them forward still. Um, so I, I think nostalgia has a lot of opportunities for reflection in it. And um, yeah, or previous I, I like that answer a lot. that you worked with, right? There's so much change yeah. in the workplace now that there are times where we have good colleague groups and, and not so good. And so, yeah, that was what came to mind for me. I'm glad that resonated. Okay, that's great. So the the last one here was building your own brand because you, you definitely make a point of that in the book and you cite the seminal Tom Peters article on that front. Um, you also mentioned one point, I think it was from Harvey J. Coleman, this idea that if you drew a pie chart of success, <laughs> image would be 30%, exposure 60%, and performance was merely 10%. I found that really intriguing and probably fairly spot on. Um, can you just say a bit more about it first and then we'll go to the chart? Yes. It does not, 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 not mean that you don't have to perform. 
<laughs> it does not. It does not mean that. What it means is performance is table stakes, right? Doing your job is what you're hired to do, what you're paid to do. But the difference between like school where you take a test or you submit a paper is everyone has a level playing field, right? Nobody cares if you're wearing sweatpants when you take the exam or, you know, what have you. Everyone's on a level playing field in terms of their exposure. In the work environment, you could do great work, but if nobody's aware that you're doing it, it's not going to get yes. you very far. And a mistake I see a lot of people make, particularly in a new organization and particularly younger um, employees who've come right out of school is they think, well, if I just keep my head down and work, someone will notice. And the reality is that's not always true, particularly in the United States. And so looking at your emotion chart, you know, I think people need to balance pride, you know, and maybe being too proud of your work and, you know, being too, you know, um, conceited was the word we always use as kids, right? With the shame of sort of saying, I did great, I did great, you know, look at my work. <laughs> There's a balance there. Um, and a lot of people are very uncomfortable, but you can do it in a really appropriate way. You can say, oh, I wanted to share, you know, the work that we did because I think it's going to help us achieve our goals. Or I wanted to show you this positive feedback I got from our client. It really makes our team look good. You can put it in a context that doesn't sound like you, you know, have no humility, but I think that a lot of people err on the side of not promoting their work when they really should. And, and again, in a remote environment or even a hybrid environment, a lot of what each of us is doing is really invisible to everybody else. And I think we have to get a little bit more comfortable sharing that pride in a job well done. No, no, I, I think that's very true. Um, I'd also, we, we didn't really touch on the part about image, but the fact that matters is the world's moving really quickly. People are distracted. Uh, you know, as, as Oscar Wilde said, only shallow people don't judge others based on appearances. <laughs> and, you know, um, it's not just your appearance. It's your image in terms yeah. of, you know, double checking your emails for typos, you know, and, and using professional language. I think it's a lot of that, too. Yeah, no, I, I did not mean just merely physical appearance. I mean, every way in which you are projecting who you are and what you're capable of and what you're doing. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, is there a, a last uh, little nugget from your book you want to bring in? You know, I just wanted to mention the importance of, of mindset of mental health. Um, the probably number one question I've been getting um, since Recalculating came out in 2021 is, you know, I know the right things to do, but what do I do? And I just can't motivate to do them. And I think that languishing that Adam Grant talked about, the burnout, you know, that I think people are really acknowledging, that is so real. And, you know, sometimes we have to feel it and wallow in it. But to me, the only way to overcome the languishing or the burnout is to take the tiniest step you possibly can, you know, in a direction you want to go. And I think that over time, those tiny steps really add up. And I just encourage people not to, you know, completely stop, but to try to take the smallest steps we can to move forward. But I, I really do want to acknowledge that this is such a difficult time. And, um, you know, not a lot of people are thriving right now. Small steps really do make a big difference. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. Another one of my guests on the podcast talked about changing habits and uh, tiny habits, tiny steps mm. uh, were perfectly fine because they, they eventually help you make large steps. Um, Lindsay, this has been really wonderful. You've been a delightful guest. Uh, this has been episode number 98, How to Be a Perennial. My guest, Lindsay Pollock, she is the author of Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. 
If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website. That's the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. Or you can go to the New Books Network and type in the show's name and find them there. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from the English novelist George Eliot. She wrote, it is never too late to be what you might have been. Until next time, take care and be well. Thank you.